This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello, and welcome to Rex Factor. Not today reviewing the Queen and Prince Consorts of England, but fear not, I'm in the process of writing the notes of Margaret Von Ju's episode, so we'll be releasing her biography episode in a couple of weeks. For now, we wanted to share with you the inaugural Local Legends, which is a new bonus podcast series that will be exclusive to Privy Councillors who sign up to the special episode and Star Chamber tiers. Each episode will be focused on someone or something that is local to Star Chamber members who get to nominate the topic, so a chance to learn about people and places that we wouldn't normally cover uh, on the podcast. For the first two episodes, Ali and I have selected our own local legends, and this first episode that you're going to listen to now is my choice. Uh, so if you want to hear more local legends or any of our other numerous bonus podcasts, and sign up at patreon.com forward slash rexfactor. Otherwise, we'll be back in two weeks for Margaret of Anjou. Welcome to Local Legends. Time, Judge Tyndall. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to the first ever Local Legends podcast. I had to do a new intro and everything. You did? Mm. Well, that's exciting. Here we go. This is the start of something new. It is indeed. And what is it, you may well ask? Yes. You, uh, yeah. <laughs> Which is the case in most podcasts, but this time it's a valid question that others may ask as well. Um, this all came out of me trying to think of ways to create a bit more value uh, at the different war tiers after our move to Patreon. So Local Legends is another uh, series for special episode and Star Chamber members to listen to, and it's also another series for Star Chamber members to commission. Uh, And the idea behind Local Legends is that we will look at a person, event or thing which is local or notable to somebody in the Star Chamber. So what we will do is shine a little light on maybe something you've noticed, like a statue, a plaque, a building, etc. And either something you've always wanted to know more about or you already know about but would enjoy uh, hearing us talking about it. So it could be a plaque for someone or something you always walk past, uh, a statue, somebody that you don't really know who they are, what they did, or maybe a bigger slice of history, like a monarch visiting town or something uh, along those lines. So basically, it's a subject, not a big subject, that would fill a two-hour special, but it's a good sort of bite-sized option. Nice. Hmm. Um, are we going to put this one out, first one out as a freebie, so people can see what they're missing? Yeah, we might, could do it. I guess we'll see how, see, how how it the, see how it goes. See how it goes, uh, anyway, so uh, we're doing two recordings at a time. So in future, uh, one will be decided by a randomly drawn member of the Star Chamber. Um, so we do sort of each mini-series, we do sort of random prize draw on each tier. So one each time we commissioned by a Star Chamber prize winner, and the other will be decided on by a Star Chamber vote. So you send in your ideas for Local Legends, and then Ali and I will each pick one uh, and put it to the vote of the Star Chamber. So if you're in the Star Chamber and you've not yet sent in uh, any ideas for a Local Legends, then please do. So even if your name doesn't come up in the uh, prize draw, you might still get your choice selected. Nice. Good system. For our initial two episodes, however, uh, to give you a sense of uh, what it's all about, Ali and I have made our own Local Legends selections. So Local Legends 1 and Local Legends 2 will be our choices. 3 and 4 will be from the two Star Chamber members whose special episode nominations... 
for the first Star Chamber vote were unsuccessful because we had three mm-hmm. prize winners first time around. Uh, mm-hmm. So five will be our most recent Star Chamber prize winner and six will be the first one voted on by Star Chamber members. Nice. Um, I feel like our choices very, very closely uh, mirror our personalities. <laughs> <laughs> You've got... Well, well, what have we got? Well, yeah, so Local Legends 1 is uh, my selection and uh, this is going to be Judge Tyndall or uh, Nicholas Cunningham Tyndall give him his full name oh. so uh, in terms of why I picked him he's got a statue in Chelmsford uh, mm. where I live and where you've uh, resided as well uh, near the top of the high street in what is known appropriately as Tyndall Square so he's someone that I and anyone else who passes through town would see on a daily basis but I've never really known anything about who he was or why he had a statue it was just there was this statue there of a judge it's quite the statue as well we should put it a is. picture up I'll put it on Facebook but he, he looks very imposing. There's, there's Tyndall Street with the Judge Tyndall pub on that was not often on our radar. That pub, really. I don't. Is it still? Is you, the... We went when it turned into a like a. <gasps> How weird is that? It was a contactless bar. Yeah, that's where we up, first met Tom from Tidmouth. Yeah, set up like ten years too early, or no, maybe <laughs> yeah. even less. When do we do the animation start? Maybe twenty fifteen. Yeah, or sixteen, maybe. 15 or 16. Imagine that now. Like, that was the future. We were saying it like because everyone loves tech, not because there'd be a pandemic. I used to think, though, that my dad was Judge Tyndall. (laughs) Did you? Did I ever tell you this? No. You know that big statue? Um, Yeah. uh, I saw my dad going off to work, not in a wig. He is a bald man, but uh, for work purposes, a Mm. wig was with him, not on him. Didn't drive in it. Um, (laughs) I knew he worked in something in the law, and mm. then, uh, you know, he's he's the big boss when you're teeny tiny. I mean, like yeah. age four or five, and it was right by it's right by where he used to work. So there's a man with a with a wig, honest, judge, his dad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. Do you remember when you uh, when you realised that wasn't the case, or was that just a gradual sort of realization? I think of... a gradual realization. Yeah. I think probably the very next time. I saw it, I realised that wasn't the case. <laughs> you looked at it. And re- yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the Specsavers now. Oh. oh uh, well, which I don't think they've kept the uh, the original name. <laughs> <laughs> but you can try your own glasses on. Well, so I always wondered who this person was. Ali uh, thought it was his own dad. Um, neither of those uh, responses were particularly uh, on the money. Uh, oh. So I thought it'd be interesting to find out who this guy actually is. Mm. His uh, he has an inscription on the statue, which would have given a certain amount of clue. But despite <laughs> interest in history, never bothered no. to read the inscription of the statue you walk past every day. So this is what it says on his statue: "The Right Honourable Sir Nicholas Conningham Tyndall, Lord Chief Justice of the Court of Common Pleas, born at Chelmsford. Uh, this statue was erected in 1850 to preserve for all time the image of a judge whose administration of English law, directed by serene wisdom, animated by purest love of justice, endeared by unwearied kindness and graced by the most lucid style, will be held by his country in undying remembrance. Well, that's nice. If he... Sounds good. Yeah, sounds good. I'm just a bit wary of... I mean, you never judge a book by its cover, Graham, apart from... Actual books and people. Do you judge? <laughs> do you judge a judge by its cover? Yes, he looks a bit stern, and I think I I worry that a Victorian judge had an awful lot of power and not probably much accountability. 
Mm. Let's find out what Josh Tinder was really like. Uh, He was born in Chelmsford, Essex, on the 12th of December, 1776. Now, I've seen in some places it written that he was born at Coval Hall, uh, but there's a blue plaque easily missed on 199 Molsham Street stating that he was born there. Uh, why? Why? Uh, okay, I was just about to ask, why is he so important? <laughs> but we'll get there. <laughs> that um, could in- indeed be the entire subject of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> what? Coval House? Mm. There's a Coval Lane, isn't there? Or Coval... A uh, Coval Hall. So there is still a Coval Hall. It's... Um, it's not a huge mansion. It's not like a Highlands house, but a sort of, a, I guess, a what would have been a notable... Where is that? Is that out by the industrial estate? I'm going to look. Um, it's been suggested that the fact that his family were quite well-to-do, mm. and indeed that Coval Hall was associated as being the Tyndall family home, maybe makes that the more likely option, um, unless his mother was just caught unawares doing the shopping on Mulch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Had to pop in. Oh, no, you're right. You're totally right. It's just right. It's right in the centre of town. Oh, it's that Strutton Parker building. Mm. Oh, I see right by the train station. Uh, Did I pass the test of general knowledge of Johnson? <laughs> uh, so he was educated at King Edward VI Grammar School, Kegs in Johnson. No way. Uh, before going on to study at Trinity College, Cambridge. And uh, apparently his old school friends would later recall uh, that he had early indications of those quick parts and that solid talent which afterwards marked his career. Ah, very good. Uh, I mentioned the family home. Indeed, he was from a fairly noted uh, family. His great-grandfather, another Nicholas Tyndall, was a translator and continuer of a noted history of England. And his great-great-granduncle, Matthew Tyndall, was a deist and author. And there's some speculation that he was collaterally descended from William Tyndale, the famed English translator of the Bible in the 16th century. Yes, I've got to sort of rein in my... uh, uh, Amazement that this that everything relates to Chelmsford. That is local legends. That's the point, uh, and it's your one. So, because I'm just used to you know you talking about great events from the past, and here we are talking about kegs. Here we are in Chelmsford. Yeah, yeah. Here we are in a completely inconsequential place. Well, I mean that is largely where the Chelmsford bit ends. Once he leaves kegs, he's oh. basically done with Chelmsford. But. He is still here, and he's still remembered. Mm. Uh, or rather, his statue is still here, and he's remembered. Um, yes, yeah, so the suggestion that he's descended from William Tyndale, who uh, famously translated, did the English translation of the Bible uh, in the reign of Henry VIII, but there doesn't seem to be an actual genealogy for this, so it's perhaps just a, that name looks the same. Yeah, yeah. That's tempting. That's my school of... Um... Yeah. <laughs> Less excitingly, his father, Robert, was an attorney in Chelmsford, so Nicholas just basically follows his uh, father's footsteps when it comes to his career. Ah, that's the guy I was thinking of then. That's who I thought my dad was. <laughs> His dad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he marries a lady called Merilina Simmons in 1809, who's the uh, youngest daughter of a captain in the Royal Navy. Mm. Uh, and they have five children together, one daughter and four sons, before her death in 1818, when she was only 29 years old. Mm, gosh. Uh, he never remarried. The curiously noted in 1827 that his spinster sister-in-law, Juliana Simmons, was the lady who presides in my house. Whatever that means. Um, I reckon he means that she's the female influence in his household. Like she's the top, top dog. Uh, Because he's presumably still got kids to bring up. And she's doing that. And he's got some lawyering to do. And thus Mm. not bringing up kids. Mm. Judge Tyndall's my name. Judging's the game. (laughs) (laughs) 
Anyway, as I said, he followed the professional path laid down by his father, so he becomes a lawyer. Uh, first called to the bar in 1809, and he joined the Northern Circuit, where he became a friendly rival to a chap called Henry Broom, who would go on to be Lord High Chancellor. Um, and initially was actually one of uh, Tyndale's pupils, uh, along with a chap called Lord Wensleydale, who isn't necessarily all that interesting or important, but his name is Wensleydale, so I felt I had to mention yeah. him. Cheese. Uh, but they get on, so they are friendly. Uh, Judge Tyndall wins, well he's not a judge yet, Tyndall wins the reputation of being thoroughly learned, though apparently found very little fame as an advocate. Mm. So he knew his stuff, but wasn't actually necessarily that great at applying it in court. Okay, right. I like him, so far. (laughs) Good for the pub quiz, but he might not get you off murder. Yeah, yeah, fine. Well, that's the level of friendship that I'm into, really. Mm. Though I say that, but to be fair to him, one case where he did successfully apply his thorough, if eccentric, learning was in the 1818 case of Ashford v Thornton. Uh, So Tinder was representing Thornton, who had been acquitted of the murder of a young woman, uh, but then her brother, Ashford, uh, launched an appeal, resulting in Thornton... Having, uh, having to be rearrested, But Tyndall successfully argued that Thornton was entitled to trial by battle. Uh, and unsurprisingly, Ashford didn't fancy it, and consequently Thornton was released. Was he just finding some fun old bit of legal history that to play around with? Indeed, because he knew, he knew his stuff, he was thoroughly learned, so he knew these obscure laws that were obviously still in place. So he said, well, you know, you could... <laughs> Could demand trial by battle. And what would that have been? Like a, a, a duel? or Some form of duel or some form of champion. I mean, it's one of those where it obviously wasn't intended to still be there, so it was quite an arcane law to have pulled mm. out of the hat. So the following year, the law was repealed. Oh, because it was used. It was one of those things, yeah. like an appendix would it be fine <laughs> yeah. unless it makes a pain of itself. Uh, despite that, in 2002, a six-year-old man who got a £25 fine from the DVLA demanded a trial by battle against a champion to be nominated by the DVLA. Uh, might have done better just to pay the fine, though, as magistrates fined him £200 with £100 cost. Uh, that's a shame. I like it when... Um, it's a shame the, nobody yeah. fought to the death <laughs> over a traffic fine. No, I like it when, uh, when big bureaucracies um, have a little bit of humour. <laughs> or hoist by their own petard. And yeah, and they sort of, you can imagine that appearing on their official Twitter account, that, like <laughs> asking Mike Tyson to at them or something. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, gift mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Uh, the most notable case that uh, Tyndall was involved with in this period, however, was the trial of Queen Caroline 
1820. So this is Caroline of Brunswick. Yeah, George strange... the... Hang on, let me do it. Fourth. Yes. I worked it out because of the date. Exactly, the estranged wife of uh, George IV, who wanted to uh, dissolve the marriage and uh, prevent her becoming queen. Um, it became a national sensation with Caroline attracting huge popular support, particularly amongst radicals who detested George. Mm. Um, so Caroline's chief attorney was Tyndall's old friend, Henry Broom, uh, and he asked Tyndall to be part of Caroline's supporting council, because otherwise he would have been retained for the crown. Yeah. Uh, and Broom stated that Tyndall gave able and useful assistance, uh, though it's also been written that he was overshadowed somewhat by the other leading figures on the trial, and it did not enhance his reputation. It sounds like he just doesn't have enough flair for the time. Mm. Yeah, he needs to be more of a showman. Yeah. yeah. Tyndall probably thought, <laughs> if if we need to dig out some pretty obscure laws that are going to help yeah. us out, you're the man. But I'm maybe not going to put you on the front bench for actual, yeah. you know, chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm face, you're brains. Let's get on with it. <laughs> yeah. I think he did do some questioning of someone slightly lower down the pecking order in the list of witnesses. Mm. But, but uh, he didn't make... The uh, the Evening Heralds. Didn't make the Evening Heralds, but still, he was there and uh, was part of the major political event of the era, captured the attention of the whole nation, uh, and he is captured in a famous painting of the, tri- uh, of the trial, The Trial of Queen Caroline by uh, Sir George Hayter. And uh, I'm just going to send... Actually, no, I, I'm not going to send a link. I'm going to try and... Uh, I'm not going to experiment with sharing my screen. Because uh, not to undermine Judge Tyndall's... Uh, Magnificent appearance, but it does require a certain amount of work to... uh... Okay, can you see... Yes. The painting. I can. Can we make it bigger? Well, what we're going to do, I'm going to find Judge Tyndall. So this is quite a famous painting. It's the most famous painting of the time. It's a contemporary one. I'm going to find him on here. And it's very clever. So this is a National Portrait Gallery. Uh, And what you can do is you can see all the people who are listed... And mm. it does identify, which allows you to click, oh, and then it will show you cool. where he is. And there he oh, is. Oh, wow. Well, no, that's the back of his head. <laughs> it's just the back of his head. <laughs> Mind you, he is wearing my dad's wig again. He is wearing your dad's wig, and, you know, he's, he's there at the front. Yeah. Say, with his back to us, but nevertheless. If, you, if he, he was showing off, like, the equivalent today would be, uh, yeah, I was in um, the new Star Wars film, and you show <laughs> someone, and it's someone walking across the scene, the entire thing, their face not in shot. It doesn't count. It could be anyone. Have, have you watched um, Toast of Tinseltown? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Have you watched the whole thing? Have you just I, I watched the that? last one last night. Very much the... <laughs> yeah, that's what, I think that's what was on top of my <laughs> yeah. mind. Oh, yeah, no, exactly like that. Yeah, 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 in a spacesuit, yeah. Anyway, he's there. So uh, it's a big big thing, and uh, even if he didn't have a major role, it's very much the sort of lead thing that he did. It would be top of his CV. Uh, And it certainly didn't do his uh, career prospects any harm. So in 1823, he was considered for the vacant office of Solicitor General. Uh, Didn't get it on this occasion, but the following year, ministers decided they did have need of his services in the House. So he was elected as a Tory MP for the constituency of Wigtown Burrs in Scotland. Wigtown Burrs in Scotland. Oh, such poor people. (laughs) Who is this guy? (laughs) What's going on? Uh, He served there for two years until he was knighted and then was appointed Solicitor General. Uh, He then left Scotland and became MP for Harwich. 
until 1827, when the appointment of a new Lord Chancellor created a vacancy in the University of Cambridge seat. Uh, so Tyndall stood there and was elected by the crushing margin of 479 votes to 378 votes. Mm. Um, he declined the opportunity to uh, assert a claim for being Attorney General, um, and then in 1829 was elected to the bench, i.e. he became Judge Tyndall. Mm. Uh, now, we'll get on to what he did as judge soon, but in terms of what he stood for as a politician, the main thing I've established is that he was a consistent opponent of Catholic relief, i.e. more rights for Catholics. Oh dear. Um, however, in 1829, he declared a pragmatic change of heart in response to a petition against further relief. With these sentiments, my own fully concur. And if I saw any probability of success in resisting these claims, I should still hold myself bound to oppose them. But as the tranquility of Ireland, and in my judgment, the security of the whole empire, call upon the legislature to receive with deliberate attention the claims made upon it, I do think I shall better discharge my duty by bestowing whatever time and labour I can on the framing, devising, and perfecting of such full and sufficient securities as shall establish permanently and inviolably the Protestant ascendancy in this country, than by devoting myself to a single and fruitless opposition to all concession. What's he saying? Absolutely, giving more rights to Catholics is obviously a terrible, terrible thing to do. But I think we've got to accept that we have to make a little concession here or else we risk causing a right old Barney that could make things even worse. In about 100 years. So he does vote for some Catholic concessions against all better reason. <laughs> OK, that doesn't count. Um, it's probably fair to say, again, not a gifted uh, politician... Um, in one cabinet meeting, uh, there was a discussion where he mistook the regulars of the Church of Rome for the regulars of the army. And uh, <laughs> consequently, I, I haven't got the specific details, but presumably said something pretty stupid. <laughs> yeah, for us to be talking about it, uh, best part of 200 years later. Well, and also just I'm trying to think the context in which either of those two things would have been discussed <laughs> yeah. and his attempt to say something relevant, having completely got the wrong subject. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm warming to him. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't listening, but I heard a bit. I, I'm going to, I feel I need to make my presence here validated somehow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll just We've say something uncontroversial like that. that is pretty basic and then we'll all move yeah. on. But suddenly everyone picks him up and he's like, yeah. oh. Of course, those rations uh, that poor uh, regulars have are awful out in the field, aren't they? <laughs> anyway, uh, tea? <laughs> Um, assessing his oratory uh, skills, an obituous wrote of him, We can say but little for his qualifications as a public speaker. His manner was cold, dry, and unimpressive. His political and historical knowledge displayed itself to small advantage. It bore upon a few questions, and not even upon those with much power. One would have expected that his talent and learning as a lawyer must have often enabled him to enlighten the House on legal difficulties, yet he had not a popular mode of discussing even questions of law. He seems like someone who just knows the right people and... Oh, that's my Mac talking to me. <laughs> Never had that before. Um, yeah, he seems like someone who just sort of fails upwards and bumbles <laughs> yes. and uh, just is really good at detail, but not much else but a safe pair of hands. And it feels like with all of this, like maybe he should be sort of in a university somewhere teaching law... Mm. But he's maybe, he's clearly not very good at public speaking mm. and doesn't have that certain razzmatazz. Yeah, that's definitely true. 
Uh, politics, maybe, not for him, but thankfully his appointment to the bench in 1829 took him out of Parliament and back into the legal world, and he was appointed Chief Justice of the Common Pleas, which was one of the highest uh, judicial offices uh, in the country, behind only the Lord High Chancellor and the Lord Chief Justice. Mm, okay. So this is more suited to him, then? This is more suited to him. So the Court of Common Pleas concerned common law with civil with a civil litigation, so that's sort of in monarchy terms, subjects versus other subjects. Yeah. Um, and also the supervision of local and manorial courts. Um, the court originated with Henry II, but the first Chief Justice uh, of the Common Pleas was appointed by Edward I. Yes. Uh, it ceased to exist after 1875, so it just became part of the High Court of Justice. So there isn't someone with that title now. Okay. Uh, but curiously, given this is my local legends for Chelmsford, the town of Keswick in the Lake District has a Weatherspoons pub called the Chief Justice of the Common Pleas in a former yeah. magistrate's court and police station. Um, That's built... a bit of a mouthful. Indeed. Well, yeah. I was, I, we want another beer after the... Uh, <coughs> um... The pub with the with the law man in it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was built on the site of a workhouse founded in the will of Sir John Banks, who served as Chief Justice of the Common Pleas from 1640 until his death in 1644. Mm. Anyway, Judge Tyndall is now Judge and Chief Justice of the Common Pleas, and it's here, in this role, that he does finally find his calling and has a lasting impact. He gains a lot of, rap- uh, a lot of popularity for his approach and introduces some significant legal reforms. Uh, So one of his most high-profile cases was when action was taken against Lord Melbourne for his having had criminal conversation with Caroline Norton. What's criminal conversation? Like uh, spying? No, just rumpy-pumpy. Just talking about rumpy-pumpy? No, having rumpy-pumpy. Conversation being a euphemism. Oh, they can't even say it in official documents. (laughs) Adultery. Oh, dear. Oh, it must be so hard being alive back then. <laughs> yeah. uh, the case was thrown out after nine days, but given that Lord nine Melbourne... Nine days? Yeah. God. Yeah, that's quite a long time to yeah. take to throw it. It wasn't sort of dismissed instantly. It's hearing quite a lot of detail and they'll be like, mm, no, yeah. enough. Yeah. We, we Just... can't maintain this euphemism for... this. <laughs> cool. Uh, but given that even even though it was over after nine days, the fact that Lord Melbourne was at that time Prime Minister uh, did have a certain impact on the stability of his government. Um, some of his cases, however, did have a significant and lasting impact on English law. So in 1843, uh, Daniel McNaughton assassinated Edmund Drummond, who was the secretary to the then Prime Minister Robert Peel. Uh, now, McNaughton was clearly seriously mentally ill, and consequently, Judge Tyndall introduced a new special verdict uh, a new special verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity. Ah, yeah. Uh, and this caused a sensation, and uh, Queen Victoria was appalled by this and called for McNaughton to be retried in the House of Lords. Can you do that? I mean, I guess you can, but what, well, that, the sh- House sh- of Lords? She can do that. <laughs> She's the queen. Yeah, 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 <laughs> not everybody can. Um but- like that is that ever been used as a court Kate, as a courtroom the house of lords well so the house of lords called upon a panel of judges which was headed by Tyndall to provide advice on what course of action should be taken when defendants commit crimes whilst insane uh, and their advice as i say headed by Tyndall remains the foundation of the law of insanity throughout the english common law world so they say 
that every man is to be presumed to be sane and that to establish a defence on the grounds of insanity it must clearly be proved that at the time of the committing of the act the party accused was labouring under such a defect of reason from disease of the mind as not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing or if he did know it that he did not know what he was doing was wrong or did not know he was doing what was wrong. Well, that's great, isn't it? Yeah. Like, mm. For those with mental health problems, that just seems a bit out of character. Well, I, you know, I only mean, guess maybe he's, you know, he's a nice and reasonable guy. He just doesn't like Catholics. <laughs> yeah, but P.S. <laughs> on this law, not Catholics. <laughs> yeah. Um, isn't it a highly fictionalised portrayal of Drummond's death appears in the TV show Victoria with uh, Jenna Coleman, in which she's depicted as the lover of Lord Alfred Paget and he's killed instantly when heroically taking the bullet intended for Robert Peel. Um, in reality, Peel wasn't there, though he may have been, Drummond may have been mistaken for him, and uh, Drummond actually died several days later, possibly more due to flawed treatment from the doctors than the initial wound. Uh, but it just makes better story. Having... Makes better story. Yeah. So, uh, sadly, Tyndall doesn't get to feature in the TV series, but he's, you know, he's adjacent. He, if they expanded the scene out like that, you'd yeah. see the back of his head. Exactly. Which is probably for the best, given that he, in modern day parlance, probably wouldn't be good on TV. Mm. Well, that's what I was saying about the statue. Mm. Uh, another notable case was Regina versus Hale, in which uh, Tyndall ruled that when a defendant is provoked to such a degree that any reasonable person would lose control and kill the provoker, the defendant would only be guilty of manslaughter. Uh, and this is the basis of the common law defence of provocation. Right, I'd never heard of that one. Um, so that would be... I mean, it's used in various um, examples, but a sort of domestic abuse, for example, uh, thing in which the yeah. victim of domestic abuse may at some point, you know, crack and yeah. kill the perpetrator. Again, that would be manslaughter on the basis of extensive provocation. Oh, mm. uh, yeah. Uh, so Judge Tyndall was a highly popular figure as uh, Chief Justice. Uh, some of his judgments not only had a lasting legacy in English common law, but they also saved many vulnerable prisoners from the noose in an era where the death penalty was quite widely applied. Mm. Um, so they're significant legal reforms, but you could also argue they're kind of important social reforms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's really good subjectivity. Hmm. Uh, he was praised by the public for displaying judicial independence from the state. So one notable example came in the case of a prisoner, Frost, in 1839-40, who escaped from a prison and led 5,000 armed men into Newport uh, Prison, I think, where they shot at regular troops. Um, and he was uh, faced with the charge of treason, but Tyndall said his motives were only to free local chartists rather than intimidate Parliament to enact reform, and so he could only be guilty of riot rather than treason. <laughs> That's good. That's really him not getting on the bandwagon and uh, knee-jerk reactions that the newspapers often demand. Yeah. They're saying, well, that's the law. That's, yeah. that's great. Yeah. I like that. But who's this guy? He sounds amazing. The 5,000 people. Oh, yeah, Frost. Yeah, I didn't did look more up about him, actually. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> um, and uh, Tyndall also queried the value of paying expert witnesses in 1831. I think we've had enough of experts. <laughs> well, yeah, I've heard a little bit of that, but um, it's kind of a populist tone to this. So he says, There is no reason for assuming that the time of medical men and attorneys is more valuable than that of others whose livelihood depends on their own exertions. So in other words, why do we just pay you know, a doctor and a lawyer, whereas a, a builder is expected to just turn up and lose a day's wage? Like, why, 
Oh, is that right? Is that what they are? Why not paying one instead of the other? Oh, right. Didn't know that. Didn't know they weren't getting paid. Hmm. Uh, And he also won the respect of his fellow lawyers. So uh, William Ballantyne said of him that he was a most painstaking judge. He was certainly not a man of startling characteristics. Again. (laughs) (laughs) Why does everyone feel they have to say that? That is really damning, isn't it? But upon the bench presented a singularly calm and equable appearance. I never saw him yield to irritability or to exhibit impatience. He was made for the position that he filled, and sound law and substantial justice were sure, as far as human power could prevail, to be administered under his presidency. Well, that's nice. Isn't it? That's really good. Mm. Sergeant Robinson said of him, There never was a more considerate, humane and intelligent judge... While few judges bore a higher reputation for a thorough knowledge of the law, no one could show greater kindness, courtesy and benignity than he invariably displayed. Nice. Oh, I like him. He's just got a a, a bit of a thing about Catholics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just a little quirk. <laughs> All Victorians had them. They did, though, didn't they? I mean, that was the age of the... Um, when the sort of British eccentric seemed to be born. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he remained in position as Lord Chief Justice uh, of the Common Pleas until uh, 10 days before his death, still working hard, when he suffered a stroke. Uh, and he died on the 6th of July, 1846, at the age of 69. Well, that's quite young. Well, probably not for that age, but... That's not too bad. Uh, he was buried in Kensal Green in Middlesex, but the Chelmsford Chronicle said of him that he had gone to the tomb amidst that which public men can seldom secure, the honest praise and the deep regret of all. Ah, oh, that's nice. And so that is Judge Tyndall. Well, I need to go into town to pick something up tomorrow, so I might um, go and get a little selfie with him. Go and uh, stick, a, stick a cone on his head in his honour. He always had a cone on his head. <laughs> he always... Yeah. I wonder if he does it. Because they've shifted him, haven't they? Uh, or are they going to shift him? Well, there's work going on around There's there, work yeah. going on, I assume. Oh, they're going to pedestrianise it, so I imagine he'll stay where he is. Well, he's sitting, so he'll be allowed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, that's it for Judge Tyndall and the first of our local legends, uh, an important uh, legal and social reformer, but um, probably not one to be sat next to at a party. No. Useful f- ally and friend, maybe. <laughs> Except to Catholics. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that is it for Local Legends 1. Local Legends 2 will be Ali's choice, and that is going to be RAF Borum, Second World War Airfield. Uh, so if you are in the Star Chamber and you haven't done so yet, please do send in your idea for a local legend and uh, that may get commissioned in a future episode. Yeah, I can't wait to be what, for what people say. Have we got, had any? We have in? had some suggestions. All oh, right, cool. We don't hear them yet, do we? Well, no, what we'll do, when, um, when we're next going to do a Star Chamber, I'll be mm. sending you a list of people's special episode ideas and local legend ideas and then you'll have to pick one to put forward or one from each to put forward. For a big okay. photo. All right. Anyway, send in your ideas for local legends, but otherwise, we shall see you next time. Cheerio. Oh, they're so close by. That's because they're local. Oh, yeah, who's that local? He's so local. What's that thing? I don't know. It's local. Right, cup of tea?